For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So I remember when I came to Ohio State, the Ohio State University as a freshman, moved here from Cincinnati, moving into the dorms. One of the things I was most excited about was that I was going to live in the dorms with one of my best buds. And, you know, we were like practically joined at the hip for the end of high school that whole summer after senior year. And I thought, man, if we're having this much fun now, wait until we go off to college together and share a dorm room together. Well, I learned there's a big difference between seeing somebody several times a week and sharing a 12 by 12 cell known as a dorm room 24-7. Very quickly, conflicts erupted. I didn't know what to do about it. Things got tense. We started forming other groups of friends. Uh, we started avoiding each other. Um, I, I would get so frustrated, but I would just try to stuff it down because I didn't know how to bring up any of my concerns or any of the problems I was seeing. And uh, occasionally it would just bubble out and then I would feel really dumb for how it came out and it wouldn't do any good. It would just make things worse. You know, we even brought our RA in at one point to try to help us talk things through. And I just never saw this coming. At the time, I, I didn't know what to make of it. I, I just blamed him for all of it. And it wasn't until later that I realized the problem was I just didn't know how to resolve any conflicts. I had no idea what I was doing. And I went on to learn that anytime you get people in close proximity to one another, you're going to have conflicts. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Where it becomes bad is if you don't know how to resolve those, if you don't know how to work those out. And some of us, we've learned a lot of bad habits, a lot of bad patterns in conflict resolution from our parents and other influential people in our lives. And um, <clears throat> we've seen a lot of failure. Maybe some of us, we're even growing a little bit cynical about relationships and are learning to hold people at arm's length. Where are we going to go to get the wisdom we need to learn closeness, to learn to work out our conflicts? And for that, we turn once again to the book of 1 Corinthians, this great letter we've been studying written, written 2,000 years ago from a guy named Paul to this really rowdy group of pretty new Christians living in the city of Corinth. And, you know, th this group had a lot of problems. They, you know, um, the, the big problem, though, was they, were, they still hadn't changed their way of thinking. And so, like we said, Paul goes back through some of the basics, but now he's saying, you guys need to learn the wisdom of God, and he's applying that into some really key practical areas. Last week, we talked about God's wisdom and tough love. Next couple weeks, we're going to talk about God's wisdom and sex and marriage and divorce, some pretty relevant topics. This week, we're going to talk about how God's wisdom applies to dealing with conflict. So let's go ahead and start reading 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. Paul once again starts off the chapter strong. He says, If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? And so in Corinth, they would get into a conflict with one another, and the one guy would be like, you're wrong. And the other guy would say, no, you're wrong. And he would say, no, you're the one that's wrong. And they would get madder and madder at each other, and they'd go off and they'd talk to their friends about it, and they'd come in for another round. And then finally, one of them would say, I'm taking you to court. And the other guy would go, bring it on, little man. And then 
he would drag them down to the Bema seat and they would stand before the Roman proconsul and let him decide who was right and who was wrong. And one guy would walk away feeling pretty vindicated and like, yeah, I showed him. And the other guy would walk away bitter that he got screwed by the judge and they would hate each other forever. And this is how people in the church were dealing with their conflicts. And why was that? The reason was because that's how you dealt with conflict in Corinth. You took each other to court. And, you know, remember when Paul, we read about Acts 18, when Paul was in Corinth, Sosthenes had a problem with him, what happened? He ended up in court, standing right there before the Bema seat. And so now, their thinking hasn't changed at all. They've taken the way they always did things, the way of conflict they learned from their families and from their relationships and from everyone up until now, and they brought it right over into the church. And Paul says, what? You guys are doing what? What is this that I hear? And what he doesn't, though, the way he addresses is he doesn't say, stop doing that. What he says first is, you guys do not understand who you are. This is so incongruous with who God has made you to be. And so he goes to their identity, and he goes to God's grace in their lives. He says, don't you know the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you're to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? What's he talking about? Well, he's already brought up a couple of times in this book that there's going to come a day in the future where Jesus Christ is going to come back and he's going to reward Christians for the good stuff they've done for God here in this life. He's going to give them positions of responsibility in the age to come, in the afterlife. There's going to be leadership positions available there. There's going to be real work that needs done. Apparently, a big part of that will be leadership positions and helping God sort through the mess that is this present fallen world. There will be a judgment day for everyone. And, you know, I I guess what he's saying is Christians are going to have a role, maybe like some regional judge or maybe part of some jury, but in working out the eternal destinies of people who are not, not a relationship with Christ. And so Paul says, if you guys are going to do that, why... You know, why are you going to non-believers to have them judge you? That's backward. That's the backward of the way things are going to be in eternity future. He also says, don't you know that we'll judge angels? As a matter of fact, no, I didn't. We'll judge angels. Yeah, humans are not the only ones who have rebelled against God. There's also angels who have turned against God. And we'll play a role also in God's rulings against them. It's, this is sort of like, we don't really get a lot of information about this. This is one of the few passages where he explains this, and he really doesn't explain it. But he says, if you're going to judge angels, how much more should you be the things of this life? You, God has such significant positions of <clears throat> responsibility stored up for you. This just doesn't make sense that you guys can't even work out your disputes among one another. How are you going to do the greater things God has for you if you're having trouble with this now? You're not even trying, he says. And so he says, therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to your shame. He says, this is embarrassing. You guys should be embarrassed if that was possible in the city of Corinth, to be embarrassed by anything. He says, is it possible? There's not one wise person among you 
to judge a dispute between believers for all of the, bris- the, the wisdom you brag about and all the sophistication, there seems to be a real lack of wisdom. You lack a single person who can work out a dispute between two people. That's the kind of wisdom you need to seek, not your show-off kind of wisdom, not your me-first wisdom, not your fighting and fighting and getting my way. Now, we need the kind of wisdom that, that learns from God, the wisdom of the cross, which is foolishness to everybody else, but he says to us, it's the power of God and it's the wisdom of God. He says, instead of wisdom, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. Yeah, think how embarrassing this would be. You know, here you are, you're, you're talking to your non-Christian friend, you're inviting him out to your home church, and maybe that guy works down at the Bema seat, down in the courts. And here he stands there, and he's wondering, I wonder if these Christians are really different. I wonder if there's something about the way they love one another that's different. And then he watches case after case, two more believers coming forward, each one fighting and trying to get their way and saying how the other one's wrong. And he's going to say, is there any difference here? No. These guys are just like everybody else. This is really where we show that we're different in the way we love one another, Jesus said. Now contrast that with your same buddies working down at the Bema seat, and suddenly he notices a significant drop in their caseload. He can't figure out what it is at first. And then finally he realizes the Christians have stopped showing up here. They don't need us anymore. They've found a way to work out their conflicts with one another. There must be something different about those guys. And then instead of you inviting him out to home church, he's going to be tracking you down and saying, can I come see? I'm intrigued by what I'm seeing and what I'm not seeing from you and these people. What kind of a God can bring about this sort of a transformation in someone's life? To bring about love, to bring about people laying down their rights and not fighting for me first, but saying, how can I put you first? That's the sort of transformation we'll see. He says, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. And there you have it. The wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world. You couldn't get any more different than one another. You know, the world says, fight for your rights. Put yourself first. Show the other person how they were wrong. Demand that I get for me. Protect myself. Take what you can get from other people. On the other hand, the wisdom of the cross says, give. It says, lay down your life. Jesus says, if you want to be great, you should become the servant of all. The last shall be first. It's better to give than to receive. He said, take up your cross and follow me. And we look at Christ on the cross. And we see the wisdom of God, which is foolishness to the world. You know, you want to talk about getting screwed. The cross, okay? The cross, nailed, tortured and nailed to a tree for sins for crimes you didn't commit, 
and doing it all voluntarily because I'm laying down my life for the good of another person. And here we have Jesus looking down from the cross at the people of Corinth, and he doesn't see winners and losers in these court cases. He sees a bunch of losers. He says, there's no true greatness here. You're all losers because you're all fighting for your rights, and you're losers in the only court that really matters. This is just like the world. You need to learn the wisdom of God, the wisdom that lays down my rights, that gives of myself, that says, yeah, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Why not rather be last? Because Jesus says that's how you can be first. Why not rather be the servant of all so you can be the greatest of all? Why not rather pick up your cross? Why not be the more mature person and love and forgive and give? Paul says, you don't have one wise person among you, one person that really understands the cross enough to bring about peace in this church. And that's the call to the Corinthians here. They were thinking, they were not thinking of things in spiritual terms. And so Paul tells them, you need to work out your conflicts. Now, what he doesn't really get into here is the specifics about how to work out those conflicts. You know, work out your conflicts. That's easier said than done. Have you ever been in a conflict where you're just like, I wish I knew the way out of this? I have no idea how to get out of this. I feel like it's never going to end. The white flag is up. I surrender, and I still have no idea how to make things right with this person. You ever have one of those? It's a really depressing situation to be in. And so we're going to need some wisdom here. We're going to need to hear from God on this. And uh, I'd like to just take the rest of our time together talking practically about how to resolve our conflicts. Uh, I've done some reading on this subject. I have personally gotten into quite a few conflicts over the years, purely for research purposes here. (laughs) In fact, some conflicts very recent to make sure that I have firsthand knowledge. of how to both be stuck in a conflict and also get out of a conflict. And um, so I'd like to just share with some of these things here with you guys tonight, things I wish I would have learned a long time before I learned them. Um, A lot of my insights here come from this book by Ken Sandy called The Peacemaker. This is a book that, you know, as of the 2004 printing, it had sold half a million copies a Christian book about how to resolve conflict. It's by a guy named Ken Ken Sandy who... um, he went into law, he was actually an engineer, and then he went back, he went to law school because he wanted to help people work out their conflicts. And he got out of law school, and he, he started working as a lawyer, and he realized, I'm not helping anyone work out their conflicts. All we're doing is actually intensifying the hatred for one another. And uh, so instead, he, he switched careers, and he got into mediation, Christian mediation, because he took passages like 1 Corinthians 6 seriously, which said that Christians should not take one another to court. And so he writes, he speaks on the subject, and he helps people work out their problems in a way that, that it doesn't make them hate each other more, but it actually causes them to grow and to grow closer to each other. He's got a shorter version, apparently, of this book called Resolving Everyday Conflict. I haven't read it, but um, I guess it's like a mini, like an abridged version of The Peacemaker, and it's maybe revised, but... Um, if you want to read more on the stuff we're talking about here tonight, The Peacemaker would be a great place to look. I believe we sell it over in the cafe, at least we used to. But what he argues is that uh, a lot of people take 
alternatives to healthy conflict resolution, you know, alternatives to peacemaking, one he calls peace faking. And this is where we're in denial, we run away, maybe your family's like this, we just pretend like everything's all right and we're happy, 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 and there's no problems, yay! We're a good family, and we fake peace, and then sometimes it explodes. You can't fake peace. Peace faking is different than peacemaking. There's also peace breaking, and this is the person that goes on the attack. This says, somebody's got to win, it might as well be me. And so this, there's various forms of this from you know, litigation to assault, um, but uh, this is, this is a, the attack mode in conflict. And um, former Chief Justice Warren Berger said this, he said, one reason our courts have become overburdened is that they've been expected to fill the void created by the decline of church, family, and neighborhood unity. Yeah, we're pushing things off onto the legal system and um, <clears throat> takes forever, doesn't work, super expensive, uh, doesn't restore the relationship. It might start out the finances or something like that, but that's about it. Some people, they just are in despair over how hard it is, over failures in this area. And well, God brings his hope. So I, I bring a message of hope tonight when it comes to conflict resolution. Conflict's an opportunity. That's a different perspective on our conflict. It's an opportunity for a lot of things. One, it's an opportunity to glorify God. Isn't that what Paul was saying here in this passage? We either bring shame upon the name of God or we bring honor to the name of God by how we deal with our conflicts. And if you want to stand out in a dark world, bring the wisdom of God to your conflicts. Learn how to work through a conflict. Learn how to apologize. Learn how to, how to take the lower seat. Learn how to rather be wrong. Without, without, it's not doormat here we're talking about. It's a chance to glorify God. It's a chance to serve other people. Maybe by teaching them how to work through conflict. Maybe by putting in the work required to work through this conflict, work they don't want to put in. It's a chance to grow up. I think a lot of the best growth in my life has been precipitated by conflict. God sticks us close to each other and he says, love each other. And then conflict breaks out all over the place. And we're confronted with our selfishness. And we're confronted with their selfishness and my selfish response to their selfishness. And God says, so what if they're selfish? You think that gives you a right to put yourself first? No. That's not what Christ did on the cross. He put others first. And he taught that it's better to give than to receive. And so conflict, this conflict, God has allowed it into your life for a reason. And maybe it's because he wants you to grow up a little bit. And nothing can grow you up like conflict. Ultimately, conflict should be viewed as a stewardship, not as just something to grip my teeth and try to avoid or try to make it through. Not, I'm freaking out because I'm in a conflict. What has gone horribly wrong? No, conflict, it's a stewardship from God. God has entrusted this to you. And it's required, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 4, of stewards that they be found faithful. Paul says... The one who examines me is, is the Lord. He's the one who's going to evaluate my faithfulness. And so God one day is going to evaluate, how did you do in this conflict? How did you do in that conflict? How did you do with that really difficult, annoying person I stuck in your life? 
and he's going to examine us. And so conflict's an opportunity. It's a stewardship from God, and we need to try to be faithful to do what he would want us to do with this conflict. And so Ken Sandy says, in conflict we show that either we have a big God or a big ego and big problems. Which one is it? Does your conflict reveal just how proud you are and just how rough your life is? Or does it show that God is the living God, that God is the almighty one, that God is love? That's the question. That's the challenge here tonight. So I'll just give you a couple of steps for how to resolve conflict, five steps. And number one, the starting point is to change your perspective. This is really what Paul was getting at with the Corinthians. They had totally the wrong perspective on their conflict. It was horizontal. It was putting myself first. It was taking what I can get. It was, there's, nobody treats me like that. And so, you know, here you have your two people involved in a conflict and they're, uh, and you know, there's explosions and we're like, no, you, and no, you did this and no, but he treats me that way and oh man, burn and all this stuff, you know. And then maybe we retreat to our corners and we think about it and we stew on it and then we go back in for another round. God says, you're taking completely the wrong perspective here. The biblical approach is quite different. It says, first, before I have it out with another person, I need to take a vertical perspective. I need to think about God and his perspective and what he would want in this situation. And so the mature person says, God, how can I please and honor you through this conflict? That's a question the Corinthians were not asking. God, how can I serve others through this conflict? Also not asked by the Corinthians. God, what are you going to, what are you trying to do in my life through this conflict? You can think, God, how would I want God to complete these sentences? In this conflict, Scott, I am so pleased that you dot, dot, dot. What would I want God to say he's pleased about in this conflict? Scott, in this conflict, I am really pleased that you did not dot, dot, dot. The Corinthians asked none of these questions because they had totally the wrong perspective. They had a horizontal perspective on their conflict. And until you can change your perspective, you're not going to get very far. You're going to be so mad at the other person and feel so upset by how you're being wronged that you're not going to be able to, to move in in love. So number one, change your perspective. Step two. Remove the log. This is a term that Jesus coined in Matthew chapter 7. You know, Jesus was a carpenter, right? So, you know, if you're working with wood, you know, you're sawing things, you're supposed to wear these glasses. They didn't have those glasses back then, though. But, you know, you're hammering whatever, a little, little piece of wood, a little, little wood chip might fly up and hit you in the eye, and it's incredibly painful for such a small piece of wood. And Jesus says, you know, if you got a speck in your eye, um, sorry, if, if you see that your friend has a speck in their eye, if you're going to remove that speck, there's a problem, he says. You can't remove the speck when you've got a log sticking out of your own eye. And she says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. 
Why remove the log from your eye? Well, for one, to avoid hypocrisy. You want them to admit that they're wrong, but you can't admit that you were wrong in this situation. That's, could you get more hypocritical than that? What, they're the only one that has to think about how they're wrong? Two, so you can see. You know, the eye is a very delicate part of the body. I, in general, don't want someone touching my eye. I especially don't want that if they have a log sticking out of their eye. <laughs> because they're not going to be able to see very well. Their log might be whacking me. Third, it's going to set the right tone for that resolution. It's going to come in, and instead of, you are wrong, no, you are wrong, no, you are wrong, no, you are wrong, you're going to say, you know, I was wrong. I was wrong here. And they're like, no, you were wrong. <laughs> like, it, it messes up the whole rhythm. <laughs> it's like a song, you know? And you didn't sing your line, and you break the song, which is good. Trying to set the right tone for resolution. This is spiritual maturity. The Corinthians were not doing this. They were going to court. In court, you have to build the strongest case possible that the other person is wrong and admit no wrong. Otherwise, the opposing lawyer will shred you. And that is not the way to, to Christian unity. You gotta ask God, how have I made the conflict worse? Not did I start it, but you know, maybe you didn't start it, but maybe you added to it. I bet you did. I bet you did. Maybe by something you did, were you lying or just concealing the truth? Were you judging their motives? Was your passivity what made this worse? Maybe you've got this rebellion thing against authority. Maybe you've got a misuse of authority thing going on, and you've made it worse. Perhaps it was something you said, your hurtful words, your gossip, your slander. You're complaining. Do you realize that complaining is a sin? That scripture says do all things without grumbling or complaining. Your complaining can make this problem so much worse. Maybe it has. Maybe it's your attitude. Maybe it's not something you did or said, but maybe it's just how you did it. Very self-righteous. Do you realize how Annoying it is to have to deal with a self-righteous person, an arrogant, I was right and you were wrong person. Do you realize how hard it is to get along with somebody like that? Bitter, your rudeness, your very exacting, your defensiveness, maybe your defensiveness made this worse. If you hadn't been so defensive, maybe this wouldn't be a problem. Greed, you're trying to get all that you could in this conflict, this financial dispute. Maybe I've made it worse. If you can't figure it out, maybe ask someone not involved in the conflict who might, might not have a log in their eye. They might be able to see things clearly to help you remove the, 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 the log from your own. You can also ask, do I need to apologize? I don't think this is always necessarily something you have to do in a conflict, but I think it's a pretty good idea. I think it's more than we'd like to think that we need to apologize. And apologizing is hard. Few practical tips for a good apology. Avoid if, but, maybe, etc. So for example, let me give you some bad apologies that are, some, some potentially good apologies that are ruined by these qualifiers. Here's one. Maybe you were right and I was wrong. 
What do you mean, maybe? <laughs> what you mean is, well, I think I'm right, and you think I'm wrong. So maybe I was, and maybe I wasn't. <laughs> take out the yellow word, take out the maybe, and just say, you were right and I was wrong. Oh, that feels so much better. Perhaps I should have waited to hear your side of the story. How about, I should have waited to hear your side of the story. Yeah, that's an apology. I'm sorry if I've been insensitive. <laughs> Some people are a little hypersensitive. So I guess if I've been insensitive, then those people have my apologies. Mistakes were made. How about, how about this? I'm sorry, I've been insensitive. It's not that hard. It feels kind of good. There are people in this world who have never apologized to anyone about anything and maybe even brag about it. This is not, this is not God's way. What about, I shouldn't have lost my temper, but I was tired. <laughs> okay, what a but does in apologies is it cancels out everything that came before the butt. <laughs> How about, I shouldn't have lost my temper, period. Yeah. Pause. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> you shouldn't have. And so, you know, we, we need to have apologies that are real apologies and not a sham of an apology. Be specific. You know, um, Here's a bad apology. Here's another bad apology. All right. I guess I'm just a lousy girlfriend. Maybe you should just go ahead and break up with me. Because <laughs> I suck. <laughs> Not an apology. It's a, it's a manipulative attack. <laughs> How about this? I realize I've been especially needy the past few weeks. I have been trying to define myself by what you think of me when really that should be God's role. In particular, I was wrong to throw that tantrum yesterday. Yeah, that's better. There's some specifics here. Not I'm sorry that I'm terrible, but I'm sorry for this. And it shows you thought about it. It shows there's some hope of change. Part of what that's saying to that person. Actually say you're sorry and ask for forgiveness. Uh, the, the thing missing from a lot of apologies is the actual apology. I talk about things I've done wrong and the apology is implied. What about I'm sorry? Will you forgive me? And, and it's not that we're demanding forgiveness right now. person might need some time. They might need to think about it. And um, we need to be willing to give them that space. I mean, I'm the one that was wrong, right? I'm not going to demand apology right now. This is, not, this is not for me. It's for them. And finally, accept the consequences. Some people deliver a great apology, and then you're like, I forgive you, and you're fired. I forgive you, and um, I'm breaking up with you. And then they go ballistic. And what it shows is they really hadn't claimed wrong. This was all a manipulative plea to get their way. They can't accept the consequences of what they did. They can't accept reality. And so removing the log includes this question here, 
do I need to apologize? And perhaps a really good, thought through, specific, humble apology. Third, we need to do some thinking here to clarify the situation. Conflicts get confusing. They really do. And uh, it takes some time to think it through and to sort out the issues. There's a lot of feelings swirling around. It's hard to remember even what happened sometimes because you're so angry or you're so hurt. And so one thing we need to clarify is the material issues and the personal issues. You know, there can be one or more of both of these in any given conflict. And, um, you know, for example, you know, where should we go on vacation? That's a material issue. You always have to have your way. That's a personal issue. And, you know, talking about where to go on vacation or what time we're going to leave for the trip or whatever, that's, that's a decision that has to be made. But it might, also, it might trigger the second thing. We're like, well, you always have to have your way. And, and there's these festering hurt feelings or this festering bitterness between two people. And um, both would need to be worked out. And um, sometimes working out the material issue is good first. Sometimes, I think more often you've got to work through the personal issues and then make decisions about the material issues. Um, what should we spend our money on versus you are so stingy? You know, there's spending decisions that need to be made, especially when pe- two people or multiple people have a share in, in some account or something. And um, brings out all kinds of conflict. Uh, I had a conflict with an old roommate of mine, I remember, back in the day where, um, you know, he, we had a shared fridge, right? Everybody had their own little shelf. But then there was a common shelf, and the, and the rule was, whatever was on the common shelf was fair game. You know, we put, like, milk on there and stuff. Or, you know, if... If you had leftovers and you didn't want them anymore, you could stick them on the common shelf and other people could have at them. Well, he went out to Chipotle and came home with half a burrito left and stuck it on the common shelf. And I noticed. And then he took off and I thought, oh, well, it's on the common shelf. He must have willed for anyone (laughs) who wants to eat this thing. So I ate it. (laughs) Because I was hungry. (laughs) And I wanted it. And so, next day he's like, uh, has anybody seen my Chipotle? I was like, yeah, I ate it. <laughs> and he's like, dude, that was my burrito. I'm like, yeah, well, I mean, you put it on the common shelf. I mean, it's, you know that's fair game, right? He's like, you jerk. And I'm like, hey, man, so we get into this fight about this. I'm being really self-righteous, Okay. Well, it turned out, I was actually bitter at this guy about other stuff. You know, he was like a trash picker, so he'd go out and he'd collect all these deals, and he would just fill our garage and our covered porch with them and stuff. And so it turned out, I was actually bitter about this other thing, and my bitterness was coming out in this passive-aggressive way, okay? And so we got to talk it through. We came to a compromise for how much crap he can keep on the garage and on the covered porch and all that stuff, and I apologized and everything, so... But, you know, you can see there were personal and material issues at play in this situation, and it can be hard to separate them out from each other. How do I feel? Think about that. Some of us aren't that aware. If, you, if you're not aware of how you feel, you might find it sneaking into this conflict in ways you don't expect. How does the other person feel? Oh, have you thought about it from their perspective? If not, maybe you're not ready yet to talk about this. 
What do I really want in this situation? Think about what's my dream resolution? If I could rub a magic lamp and get my way, what would I want? Um, that helps bring focus to the conflict. This can be really helpful in helping you get out of a conflict. You know, do I want them to admit 100% fault and never do it again? You might get that in some cases, but that's, that's a pretty big ask. You might have to think about maybe my ideal, but also realistically, what, what do I want from this person? Maybe they're like, I just want you to understand how you affect me. I, I've, I've asked this question. When I've been stuck in conflicts and I don't know how to get out, I'm just like, look, what do you want here? Just tell me. What, what's, what's, what would make you feel totally satisfied about this situation? And sometimes it's that, you know, it's, it's a minute or two to the end of the conflict that I thought would be never ending from the time when I asked that question. I just want you to understand how you affect me. I just want an apology, okay? That's all I want. Could you just replace the thing you broke? <laughs> Maybe it was an accident, but still, you broke it. Just, just give me a new one, okay? Um, sometimes it's not reparative, but it's, it's look, you, you got a problem. You got to check into rehab. That's what we want here. And um, you need to get some help because I'm afraid this is going to keep happening over and over again. But what do I want? What do they want? That's really helpful in this situation. This is also where you can ask, can I just overlook their offense? I mean, is this really something I should fight over? Scripture said, you know, we think it's, you know, the awesome thing is when I really make somebody pay. God has the opposite perspective. Proverbs says, a person's wisdom makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. That's glory in God's eyes. That's the, that's the wisdom of the cross. That is the wisdom that was not being exercised by the people of Corinth. This is why Paul asks, why not rather be wronged? Why not just be the bigger person here, the more mature person, and just say, it's cool. I'll take it. I'll absorb it. Above all, love covers, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Yeah, love Forgiveness, overlooking the offense. This is, these are the shock absorbers in our relationships. This is the cushion. This is the buffer that makes relationships possible. The fact that 80, 90, 95% of the wrongs that someone does to me, I'm just going to look the other way. You know, if my wife and I brought something up with each other, every time we felt slighted, we, our marriage would be a nightmare. No, if you're going to be close to somebody, you've got to learn to overlook most things. And, you know, you can be personally affected without taking it personally. So you can ask, is the behavior really dishonoring God? How bad is this damaging my relationship? Is it that bad? Is this a pattern? I think one-time offenses, most, most, especially most of those can be overlooked. It's when, when there's a pattern, that's when it's probably, it could be worth bringing up. How much is it hurting other people? How much is it hurting them? And it's now the right time for this. It's finals week. I've already brought up several things lately. They're going through a rough time. Maybe, maybe this is not a battle worth fighting right now. The mature person learns to think along these lines. Fourth, you've done your preparation work. A lot of the work here you can see is before this, this meeting even happens. But um, fourth, you want to meet, you're going to meet with the person if, nece if necessary. And so you might need to confront them. You might need to speak a strong word to them. You might need to negotiate. Negotiation skills can be very useful in conflict resolution. This is where you say, here's all the areas that we agree on, 
But it seems like we don't agree in this, this area or these couple areas over here. And I was thinking maybe this would be a good resolution. That's a good little template for, for negotiation, for working through a conflict with somebody. You might need to leave room for God. You might not get it worked through in the first meeting. Don't demand that the, that the person submit right now. You might say, well, let's just go away and think about this. Let's pray about this. And we'll come back together and you might find that God in those couple of days does a lot more work than you could ever do, pounding away on them in the moment. And you might need mediation. That's what Paul's bringing up here in this passage. But the mediation would be go and find that wise brother or sister that can sit down, that can help you talk it through, just you and that, the mediator, or maybe the mediator sits down with both of you. And uh, that can be the wise approach. Finally, finally, there's the need to forgive. And you know, forgiveness, this should really happen before, during, and after. Scripture says, forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against anyone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Forgiveness, God always calls on us to forgive. Um, but I'm talking about it here at the end because a lot of times our forgiveness problems are what come up later after the conflict is supposedly over. What is forgiveness? Let's talk about that. It means I'm going to cancel a person's debt by paying it myself. This person has a debt against me, and I'm not just talking financial debt or even primarily financial debt. I've been hurt by this person. I've been wronged, and I can either make them pay or I can just absorb that pain into me and I can deal with it myself. Bitterness is where we make the other person pay for hurting us. You know, somebody's got to pay. It's either going to be me or it's going to be them. And there's all kinds of creative ways we come up with to make the person pay. We make cutting remarks and we drag out the past. That's another payment on your payment plan for what you did to me. We act really controlling, demanding, mean toward them. We avoid them. We're very cold toward them. We give them the silent treatment, the cold shoulder. We fantasize about revenge. We might even seek to harm them. Better people. This is, um, I've done this in bitterness. Just thought about, kind of just imagined ways that this other person could be hurt. This other person could really go down. I might cut them down to others and seek allies. You know, somebody says something good about the person, I'm like, like well, did you know this? Blah, 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 blah. And, I, and I, I just, I make sure I try to slice away at their reputation. What about replaying the mental videos of what they did? You just remember the thing they said, the thing they did to you, and you just replay it again and again, and you're mowing the lawn, and the whole time you're just thinking about what that person did. Mowing the lawn used to be like the time of great bitterness in my life. <laughs> I'd get done mowing, it was like 30 minutes, and I was so angry on how we get done. Because these videos, that's just where my mind would go when I, when I had time. Rooting for their failure or pain where you're secretly excited when they fail. That's how you know you're bitter, and that's one more way you're going to make them pay. Does it really do any good, though? What effect will it have? Often, your bitterness does not harm the other person at all. Bitter people are sometimes even more angry 
to find out that all of their bitterness, all of their little hate beams they're shooting across the room at the other person, all the evil thoughts they're wishing upon them, the other person might not even know that you hate them, that you're punishing them in your own mind. And they don't even care, even if they do. You're trying to hurt them and you're not hurting them at all. What it does is it poisons you. First John says, anyone who hates another brother or sister is living and walking in darkness. Such a person does not know the way to go having been blinded by the darkness. Yes, you submerge yourself into a dark world. All of your emotional energy is taken up hating. It's taken up bitter. You're ex- emotionally exhausted because so much of your time is being spent on bitterness. Do you realize how exhausting bitterness is? How much emotional energy you'd have for other productive things if you weren't so bitter all the time? You're blinded by the darkness. You know, sometimes you actually start becoming the person you're bitter at because you think about him so much. So bitter at one of your parents and yet you're becoming like one of your parents. It also can poison your relationships with others and with God. As Hebrews says, watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. Like a sneaky weed burrowing through the ground, springing up in various places when you least expect it. Yeah, your bitterness, you know, it's like you're bitter at this person, and all of a sudden, this person... My bitterness at my dad starts coming out on this other authority figure or this other guy in my life or whatever. And um, it's not what that person has done. It's that you're still better against the other person. Ultimately, what it, it be- begins to set up a block in your relationship with God because by, by refusing to give grace to this other person, it becomes harder to envision how God could give grace to you. And you begin to create a world where there is no grace, where there is no forgiveness. And you can see where that's going to get in the way of your relationship with God. The block is on your end, but it's a block of bitterness. And God says, you need to forgive like I have forgiven you. How do I do that? Again, easier said than done. You try to forgive and you think you've forgiven and then suddenly you realize you're bitter again. I think for a while I just kept thinking I'm waiting for this forgiveness feeling to come over me. And so one thing we've got to do is we've got to understand what forgiveness is and what it isn't. Tim Keller says this, he says, realize that forgiveness is granted often for a long time before it is felt. A decision. It's not primarily a feeling, but a set of actions and disciplines. A promise not to exact the price of the sin from the person who wronged you. Yes, forgiveness is a choice and the forgiveness feelings will follow. This promise means a repeated set of payments in which you relinquish revenge. It's hard and for a while constant. If the promise is kept actively, eventually the feeling of anger subsides. It's critical to realize at the outset then that forgiveness is not the forcing or denying of feelings, but a promise to make and to keep despite our feelings. Yes, very helpful insights. It's not a feeling, first and foremost anyway. Forgiveness feeling comes later than forgiveness decision. Those feelings can come and go. It's not forgetting or justifying. 
It's not like, well, you know, they had a bad day or, you know, they had a rough upbringing or whatever. No, it's, it's admitting they were wrong and I forgive them. It's also not permissiveness or trust. It might say, I forgive you for what you did to my kids and you're never going to be alone with them again. I forgive you for stealing from the cash register and you're not going to run the cash register anymore until we can build up some trust here. And this is why forgiveness is not a doormat thing. But there is legitimate trust that may need to be rebuilt. And that's okay. It's for their good in a lot of cases. So I need to understand what it is. I need to experience God's forgiveness. You're never going to be able to forgive other people truly from the heart unless you've experienced complete, unconditional love and forgiveness from a perfect being. And when God forgives you through Christ, that is how we learn to forgive others because we learn to love like he does and we learn to forgive like he does. And so tonight you can come into a relationship with Christ and receive that forgiveness and set yourself on the road to forgiveness. Finally, third, pay the debt. Now, we can't pay the debt like Jesus paid the debt for our sins, okay? He actually paid our debt before God. But, you know, if someone has wronged you, we can either make them pay or we pay ourselves. I like this quote from Dan Hamilton. He said, once upon a time, I was engaged to a young woman who changed her mind. I forgave her but only in small sums over a year. They were made whenever I spoke to her and refrained from rehashing the past. Whenever I renounced jealousy and self-pity. Whenever I saw her with another man. Whenever I praised her to others when I wanted to slice away at her reputation. Those were the payments, but she never saw them. And her own payments were unseen by me, but I do know that she forgave me. He says, forgiveness is more than a matter of refusing to hate someone. It is also a matter of choosing to demonstrate love and acceptance to the offender. Pain is the consequence of sin. There's no easy way to deal with it. Wood, nails, and pain are the currency of forgiveness, the love that heals. Yeah, it's not enough just to not hate. God says, love one another. Love your enemies, even. That's the kind of forgiveness he calls for. And so how do we pay the debt? Be courteous and warm with them. Seek to restore the relationship, if appropriate or even possible. The the person you're bitter at might be deceased. In In that case, you couldn't restore the relationship. It might not be appropriate to restore it. Do not criticize them to other people. Don't dwell on it or replay those videos in your mind. Turn to something else. Pray for that person. Can you honestly pray for that person from the heart? That's a big milestone in your overcoming of bitterness. Think about ways to serve or encourage them if appropriate. And finally, you've forgiven them, the bitterness comes back up again. Keep confessing that bitterness to God. And thank him for the, his forgiveness. Just say, God, well, I thought I was over this. Apparently not. Thank you that you saw that the whole time. I want to release this person. And thank you that you forgive me, God. Forgiveness. So in conclusion, what have we seen here tonight? 
The me first approach to conflict leaves many feeling hopeless. But God's offering you hope and wisdom for real reconciliation. And you start by ending your conflict with God. Yeah, you're in conflict with God, but you can come to him and begin a relationship through Jesus Christ, receiving his forgiveness. You can do that tonight. And I just want to leave you on this question here. Are there any unresolved conflicts in your life right now? Anything God's been drawing your attention to? Do you need to change your perspective on that conflict? Take a vertical perspective instead of a purely horizontal perspective? Do you need to admit to your fault? Admit where you were wrong and give a real apology. Have you put in the work to think through the issues involved? Maybe that's where you need to start. Have you truly forgiven this person from the heart? Perhaps that's your next move. Or, to ask Ken Sandy's question, on a scale of zero to 100, how would you rate your efforts so far to restore peace and resolve this dispute? What grade would you give yourself? 50? 80? 90%? The follow-up question is this. What kind of effort would please and honor God? Sometimes it's that last 10% that takes a hopeless conflict that's never going to end and pushes it over the edge to real unity. And that's God's wisdom and conflict. All right. Maybe we should uh, pray. Yeah, God, when people look at us, we want them to see that you're real, that we're different because you are the God who's really there and that you give us a power to love that we never could have on our own. I pray that we would stop thinking in terms of um, how can I get what I want in this situation, but that we would learn from your son, we would learn from the cross, that we would learn to become givers, givers who receive your love and give that out to others. Also, just pray for anybody who's never received your forgiveness, who's never come to the point where the conflict with you is over. I pray that they would consider coming to you, receiving your forgiveness, and allowing you to put a real and permanent end to the separation. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.